Hi, welcome to Infill, where we discuss local politics and policy with the Team Yimby. I'm Laura Clark of Grow San Francisco, joined today by Sonia Trouse, Bay Area Renters. Hello. And... So, Laura was going to do all the introductions, but she can never remember the name of my organization. This is Brian Hamlin with CARLA, the California Renters Legal Advocacy and Education Fund. I can remember it if I, like, pause and spell out each letter. <laughs> but then sometimes I try to do California California A, and then I try to get something that starts with A, and I'm like, oh, fuck. Um, okay, so today we are going to do a lot of a roundup. Yimbies have been in the news quite a lot recently. Um, some of it's been fun. Some of it has been wretched. Um, but we're going to sort of chat about all the different articles that have been written. Um, and tonight we are going to a party about one of them. This is the big fun article in San Francisco Magazine called The Yimbies Next Door. Today, today alone, today's Tuesday, three articles either about Yimbies or written by Yimbies. I'm actually very proud of Vincent Wu, super volunteer. Um, he got an opinion piece in the Chronicle, SF Yimby double stand I mean SF NIMBY double standard, not all migrants are welcomed. It, it was it was good. It was hard hitting. Unfortunately, he didn't realize what was in his bio before he approved I'm not, it. We're not going to tell you. We're not going to tell you. <laughs> You're going to have to go look up that article and see what a train wreck his little bio is. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, apart from the, the falsehood contained in the bio, I really did appreciate this op-ed from uh, Vincent. You know, it's hitting on a theme that we've been talking about for a while now. In fact, that's, that, you know, Sonia got very criticized for at a recent Board of Supervisors uh, meeting by saying, hey, wait a minute. San Francisco is a sanctuary city. We pride ourselves on our openness to immigration at the national level. We, you know, decry soon-to-be President Trump's um, uh, immigration policies. Uh, and yet here... We throw up every barrier we can to allowing newcomers. So we've erected a wall of high housing costs. So the fact that we're a sanctuary city is great for undocumented folks who can afford a million-dollar home, but it's not so great for everyone else. Yeah, I think, though, we are not going to call our opposition Trumpists, okay? Can we just agree that that's— Just, just did it right now. No, we're not going to do that. <laughs> I did not call them Trumpists. Okay, let me just be clear, and I'll just say it very clearly— uh, Tim Redman and I disagree on a great many things. Um, people, the progress, the self-identified progressives of San Francisco are nowhere near as bad as Donald Trump and his supporters. So I'll, I'll just say that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but certainly they don't grant us that grace. I mean, in the SF Magazine article, uh, Aaron Peskin goes, a supervisor, supervisor Aaron Peskin, <laughs> goes off about how we are Ayn Rand fanatics. And I'm just like, God, do I really? This is the question I've been asking myself actually a lot recently is what criticisms do we respond to and which ones do we say, like, you're creating a narrative that you know is fake you know, and just don't even bother, like, saying, like, oh, that's stupid. I'm not going to engage with that. Like, do, do I really have to say that I think that Ayn Rand wrote, like, a piece of shit piling turd of a book and that I don't 
agree with basically anything any of her conclusions and she's clearly kind of a crazy person like do I need to come out and like publicly distance myself from Ayn Rand is that what my life is right now well there are certain aspects of Ayn Rand's legacy that you could maybe embrace right I mean it, it was it's pretty oh, impressive oh, that the fact that Ayn Rand yeah. you know ha- ran basically a sex cult with much younger men you know like you you you, you just never hear of that so like that is the one thing yeah. that I will give Ayn Rand credit for yeah old lady with young boyfriends I have a huge supporter, endorse that any day of the week. All right, I'll I'll give that a shout out as well. Um, But other than that, you know, I think that like her ideas are clearly foolish and and short-sighted and, and, you know, and and this is the other thing, like a a bunch of the the David Talbot article that came out. So David Talbot, who uh, launched Salon, which I've enjoyed sporadically, um, (laughs) you know, he, uh, he wrote this kind of just, just, scathing article uh, mostly focusing on my friend Justin who we have chatted about on the podcast before because he's such a adorable little doof um, he came out saying that uh, he, he deliberately misconstrued my opposition to Aaron Peskin and Jane Kim pushing uh, for the 25% uh, inclusionary at for that decision to be made at the Board of Supervisors. He deliberately misconstrued my opposition to a very specific policy to be a general anti-inclusionary zoning writ large. And obviously, we talk about inclusionary zoning positively on our very freaking, like, Yimby party founding documents saying that we want it to be a focus on maximizing the number of affordable subsidized affordable units so like you know and we, he and I talked about this for like 45 minutes like we went into exactly how and why I sp- oppose the specific piece of legislation and he just deliberately if you read this article it makes it sound like I oppose inclusionary zoning and I don't know whether this is something like like do you just go out and like be like okay this guy's lying I don't know yeah, that's what's frust- it's frustrating because, like, what's the point of that's So my answer to you is no, mostly don't engage because there's a lot of, like, weird fantasy stuff out there that people come at me, you know, and they have ideas, and I'm like, why do you... Th-? And I mean, my main thing is, like, why do you think that? That was, like, an uh, idea you had, some weird fantasy you made up in your mind and then believed it instead of not believing it. And I, I just can't be responsible for all the nonsense that people make up. So that's a very fair point. We would get nothing done if we just kept on responding to the trolling, right? So, like, you can't respond to everything. But I do think that there is a value in pushing back on this, in part because, well, new people are still coming to San Francisco, and they're trying to find their way in, in the political landscape. And if they realize that, hey, wait a minute, I'm a progressive, but these people who call themselves progressives, they believe all this retrograde stuff and then are lying and making things up about these young renters who are trying to create a more affordable city— what's up with that? You know, I don't, I don't want to be a part of that scene. So like, I, I think there is value to pushing back. And one of the thing I just wanted to mention, you know, so David Talbot, very condescendingly, I thought, accused Laura of engaging in magical thinking, um, you know, in, in asserting that there, there is a relationship between the supply of housing and affordability. Uh, well, none other than Michael Lenz, an actual housing scholar, or professor at the University of California, uh, Los Angeles, then uh, picked up on this uh, on Twitter and said, you know, this is not magical thinking, you know, like, just like, let's be real here. So we have this scenario where people like David Talbot, who, you know, have like, you know, dicks for brains, like when it comes to housing, um, are getting, you know, showed up by people like Laura Clark, and they aren't liking it. Well, so this is like that 
piece, I didn't mind at all. Him saying that supply and demand is magical thinking, I feel like he makes himself look ridiculous. You know, like that that's his opinion and that's fine. You know, and I would I would though contrast the sort of the parts where like the only problem I have with the David Talbot article is where he misleads his readers into thinking that I oppose inclusionary, affordable, subsidized housing. You know, that there's just you the part where he says, I don't care about rich people's views. I don't care about rich people's views. Don't care. Yurtle the turtle. I do not care. Okay. Like this is ridiculous. And I also feel like, you know, we can contrast the David Talbot article actually with someone who we've, you know, repeatedly been irritated with, but I don't, you know, I think is kind of generally a sweetheart is uh, Joe Fitz who wrote an article about our um, fight for the Sierra club where he basically like accused us of being like, you know, urbanists obsessed with housing to the exclusion of other environmental issues, re the Sierra Club in San Francisco. And like, I'm like, well, fair enough. Like I, that, yes, that is what I'm obsessed with. I think that it is an environmentalist message, but we are obsessed with infill development and urbanism. So yeah. And and more to your point, this idea of constant engagement with uh, people who, you know, sometimes assume bad faith or not, um, and that disagree with you. Well, Joe Fitz probably wouldn't have written that article several months ago. Uh, so the, the one thing I will push back on, though, is it's it would be very fair to critique you and Travis and Leia and Armand if you were running for the National Sierra Club board and your only platform was dense urban infill housing, right? That would be a ridiculous thing. Um, but in terms of the local San Francisco group, the number one policy issue that they weigh in on that has an environmental impact is how San Francisco uses this land, how many people can live here instead of living in the sprawling hellscapes of you know Phoenix or Las Vegas or wherever. Yeah, actually, more on the Sierra Club thing, speaking of pushing back in formal ways, I mean, the whole Sierra Club um, project, running people, is that's us pushing back. You know, that's why, I mean, we're trying to get ourselves or, you know, we have a we have a slate. And um, the point of that is that the Sierra Club is, like, blatantly not following its own um, charter and its own directives. Um, So when they sent out a mailer claiming that our slate were luxury real estate developers, uh, Travis filed a complaint because that's against the bylaws. And this is – it's just wonderful. It's been – it's been so dramatic. Um, cause he it's been so dramatic in that, like nobody but us cares. Well, there's, there's just a really great email chain going on right now. It's endlessly entertaining. So Travis filed a complaint, said that this is not true, you know? And so then this guy, Matt or Michael or something, who's like the election coordinator is going through the process. And so then he had to go back to the other slate and say, can you send me proof that these people are luxury real estate developers? And we haven't seen their response to that. Um, I don't have one. Like, what? I don't know how to build housing. No, I know. It's, I know how to tell other people how to, that they should, but I yes. that is the limit of my skills. I yeah. do not know what to do. Oh, I built some furniture one time. Yeah, that, that's the extent. Did you, you follow instructions from the IKEA? No, I made it all myself. I made the, drew out the little design. It's the luxury furniture? Yeah. I mean, it looks like it's got that, like, Bauhaus style, you know? So, like, yeah, luxury. All right, great. So, there you go. We're one chair in to um, one luxury house. No. Uh, so, then their response, though, uh, was to file a counter complaint that we lied and said that the current Sierra Club leadership cares more about protecting views than um, than advancing environmental policy, you know, 
policies that are good for the environment or or advancing infill development or something like that. Yeah, which is awesome because then they asked Travis, why do you think this is true? And it's so great because it is literally true. I mean, the current slate is running now on um, it, on fighting a wall on the waterfront. And I don't know if you guys realize, but when they say no wall on the waterfront, they're not talking about a wall made out of bricks between <laughs> the street and the waterfront. The quote-unquote wall is made out of housing. So they are literally opposing infill. That's what the, the only thing about the wall on the waterfront is it's an anti-infill anti-infill project yeah and it's it's anti-infill like all of these things on the waterfront they're like warehouses and parking lots you know like like i don't know if you've been down to the where the uh waterfront recently but god there are a lot of freaking parking lots because all these people come out to like go like do their tourism thing around the embarcadero and whatnot and they're all these flat top i mean and the warehouse i've been to a couple good parties actually out at warehouses on the waterfront so maybe we don't want to get rid of all of them but <laughs> but i'm just saying that like these you know we're not preserving un untouched marshlands this is you know exactly the kind of infill development we need to be doing yeah this is going to be really interesting i'm i'm very much wondering if the people involved in this process you know like suvon and becky do you remember her last name becky evans if this is going to make them like use their eyes and read words on a page and have the words like start to affect their brains or not because I think that there's a lot of people that are like yeah housing let's do housing but then when somebody specifically proposes housing in a place and then you oppose that housing I mean I've seen it all the time people are like I'm not against housing but don't build this housing and I always wonder what what are the words that they're saying meaning to them you know and I'm really wondering if they're going to be able to like start to come to grips with the idea that when they're opposing new housing that's opposing housing you know like do they know yeah one thing I, I wanted to get back to here though right so the, the waterfront is not just warehouses and parking lot the waterfront is also other houses and this wall on the waterfront would have blocked the views of some of the people who currently enjoy very nice views of, of, of the bay including some of the people who live in that building were uh, major uh, organizers behind this initiative uh so yeah you know as i think sonia said before uh views are neither created nor destroyed they're just uh, redistributed um well I, I guess a view sort of could be created if you build up a high vantage point where there wasn't one before but you know basically that's what's going on here you have like old money angry at new money and they're trying to make this in, into like the de defining environmental issue of, of, of our time in san francisco uh it's global warming it's not that yeah, I mean, it's, it is really interesting how, you know, sometimes you'll hear them really say that it really is about the views, you know? And that's the part where I really enjoy, right? They will talk, like the David Talbot article. He came right out and said it. I couldn't believe it. This is another reason. Why, you know what? Another reason I don't feel the need a lot of times to respond is that people dig themselves their own holes. You know, like David Talbot straight out, last sentence in the article, he said that these people, when it comes to protecting San Francisco and the way that it, the beautiful way that it looks, what does he say? Okay. When it comes to ruining, quote, ruining San Francisco's, San Francisco's legendary visual beauty, there's no room for compromise. I mean, we don't, he makes his own case. And, like, if you're the type of person that doesn't think that that should be a number one priority, that there are other things that are more important, housing, you know, then you're just going to disagree with that guy. We don't have to say anything. It was interesting to me. There were people within our coalition who were like, you know, oh, God, this is, like, going to haunt 
you know, this is so vicious and whatnot and it's going to haunt you. And I was kind of like, the part that bugs me is the inclusionary zoning. But anybody who really thinks that the visual views are more important than affordability, than a functioning city, than integration, than urban vibrancy, than a functional city where people can move to and find opportunity and have successful lives. If you're prioritizing views over that, like you weren't going to be our people. We, we were never going to convince you that, that our vision for what the city can be is, is what you want. You know, I just think those people, we already lost them. So I think that's exactly right. But so much of what we're doing, you know, these folks believe that they care about inclusion. Well, some of them do. Not all of them like I mean, they say that they, they care about inclusion, they care about affordability, they care about uh, maintaining and even increasing diversity, they care about immigration and all the rest. The, the disjuncture is between what they say they care about and the effects of the policies that they advocate. And so that's why pushing back on things like well, actually, um, increasing the supply of housing does make housing more affordable is really important because if we're not, you know, drawing the connection between their policy advocacy, the effects of their policies and how those effects are contrary to their values, I don't think we're going to get anywhere. I also think it's it is I do see it as my mission to undermine like the the progressives have managed to create this really toxic alliance between wealthy view-oriented homeowners and people who actually want this to be an affordable city. And that alliance is I think the most destructive thing in this city, you know, that that is, and I do think that is my, that's what I want to push back on the most is I want people to realize that David Talbot, he refocuses the article over and over again. He sort of does vague reference to Laura being, you know, anti-inclusionary zoning and, and that's a lie. So that's fine. But, um, he really does refocus and refocus on views. And I have to believe that if you are a low income person who's worried about being displaced in this city, I hope that you're like me and you say, I don't care about some rich asshole's view. That's just not a priority for me. If he wants to focus so much on his freaking view, move to Marin and then I'm going to build housing there too. <laughs> Do we have any updates on uh, George Lucas's spite uh, affordable housing proposal? You know, I, I remember hearing about this a, a while ago. I, I think it's probably mired down and whatever awful approval morass they have in a Marin. I do like that I got called refreshingly honest, you know? I think that's, I think if anything, we can aim to be refreshingly honest. But that's the thing. It's refreshing because he had already assumed that we were all a bunch of dishonest shills, right? And so like when you were, like when he was actually forced to have a conversation with you, he's like, oh, wait a minute, huh? You aren't the devil. This is, this is strange. This is strange. And so Again, like more to your point, like this constant engagement, I think is, you know, eventually like going to help something. But look, David Talbot, I mean, like the guy's actually like a techie multimillionaire is like the really funny thing, right? I mean, he made many millions on uh, Salon in the early content boom of the of the uh, first uh, dot com era um, and has been a longtime homeowner and all the rest re- really cares about his views. Your point, though, about the how folks like that are aligned with many who really do primarily care about affordable housing and, you know, maintaining these, you know, immigrant neighborhoods that isn't just about maintaining a neighborhood where people look like them. But there's a whole constellation of services and livelihoods and the culture that, you know, are bound up in a certain place that can't easily be replicated. So it does make sense to, to think a lot about, say, Latino immigrants in the mission or Chinese immigrants in, in a Chinatown and elsewhere. Um, but, you know, 
it was this really interesting thing where at the Moosefeed luncheon that um, uh, Laura and I went to last week, I got in this you know vehement argument with someone from the uh, Chinatown Community Development uh, Corporation. We're you know going at it, and then our, our meals come, and of course like we're the only two people at the table who get the vegetarian option. And then you know like I said, I was like, look, here's the thing: you are dead wrong about housing policy. You are asserting things that are just you know flat out untrue. But like let's think about every other non land use related political issue we agree on most of this stuff um you know we really do have more in common other than land use than you have with those rich nimbies and forest hills or or whatever and i you know i'm still hoping against hope that we can make that alliance work this is the thing that we we've we try and we try and and i'm not going to stop trying but i you know we talk about how if you're fighting gentrification in your immigrant neighborhood fundamentally that means that you are mostly have already lost because what we should have been doing is building housing in the rich neighborhoods nearby to take the pressure off. I mean, this is the the fact that the mission activists are, you know, clawing, just scraping on and trying to hold on to that little bit that they've still got left, right? It's a it's a big ask to say I want you to come help us advocate for housing in Forest Hill. I want you to come advocate with us for upzoning the West Side. I want you to come down to the South Bay and and tell these you know I mean the South Bay, it's really interesting. Like they will be very overtly racist down there. Um and for a place that's a, so close to what is a liberal bastion and people who consider themselves liberal will then get up and say the craziest shit like that woman who said i don't want to be a minority in my own home in brisbane on that on that point though right maybe the one of the biggest uh, applause lines of the night for uh the carla panel discussion last week that i moderated on a, a race class in place on uneven um, impacts of the housing shortage was when i asked the panelists so what do we need to do to, you know, draw the connection between what communities like Palo Alto and Cupertino, how they're fucking Oakland, right? Like how they're tremendous high wage job growth and no new housing, you know, causing their workers to go to San Francisco, causing San Francisco people to move to Oakland and then displace current Oaklanders, right? And this, you know, whole cycle. And like, do we need to charter buses and get busloads of Oaklanders to go down and crash a Palo Alto City Council meeting? And then, you know, everyone starts cheering like, yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. And it's, it's something I, I've thought about before. Um, but I think that we, your point though, that we do need to much more clearly draw the connection and then act on it. The displacement that happens because wealthy areas of opportunity do not allow new housing. That's the primary uh, driver of gentrification and displacement in low-income neighborhoods, not you know new market rate development in those neighborhoods. But this is a structural problem, right? I mean, the the fact that the fact of the matter is, at the end of the day, the South Bay more overtly racist people do not have to listen to the people we bus in those are not their voters they will the people on the city councils and whatnot will say you know these people are not my constituents you know and they feel very comfortable in that they don't it's strange to me how you know in my mind you should say oh look my fellow human being who's here uh telling me about the awful impacts of the policies that i'm now going to embrace but they will really be i mean it's like it's so crazy that they'll be like you know my only constituents are that of brisbane and yet they want to like be anti-trump 
who's like, I mean, you know, the whole these this this lack of empathy for someone who lives thirty minutes away from you is so fucking cold. So you're certainly right that this is a major uh, structural issue. The fact that we have 101 independent municipalities in the Bay Area is fucking insane, right? Um, that said, look, pressure does matter. Um, many of these folks do not want to be seen in the press as being responsible for the displacement of Latinos in Mission, for the displacement of Black Oakland, for the displacement of the arts community in Oakland and all the rest. And more to that point, though, you know, if we can start bringing some of these uh, marginalized communities on our side um, in our struggle against the Cupertinos and Palo Altos of of the world, um, you know, those cities also have resources. So I I met... um, just a couple of days ago with a, um, a policy director for a city council member in Oakland. And I was advocating, you know, my ordinary like you thing. I was really more there about, you know, uh, good policy in the aftermath of the, of the ghost ship fire. But I said, you know, Oakland has a city attorney. Would they be interested in, in helping um, yeah, prevent displacement by going after some of these cities that are really doing the displacing? She's like, that is really interesting. I'd never thought of that before. I'm like, well, tell you what, I'll like write you up a memo. <laughs> you know, she's like, yeah, please. And we'll talk about this further. So, you know, to, you know, if we can start, you know, cause like, look, people love to hate on outsiders as what we're talking about. If we can get Oakland to start hating on Cupertino and going after them, that that's going to make all those Oakland politicians really popular by, Hey, I, I know the source of your problems. It's those fuckers over there. I'm going to go get them. I love this idea because Jane Kim made the like error in judgment of saying we were going to annex Brisbane. No, she should have like we should be suing Brisbane. This is actually a great idea. Okay, so I'm going to put this in the we've proposed it. We're going to write it up. This is great. Um, But we definitely should be suing the other cities into compliance. I mean, this also brings up Scott Wiener's uh, legislation to hopefully improve, uh, you know, the arena numbers and add some teeth to that. Um, I think there are many ways that we can sort of have I mean we're going to have to I don't think that we can necessarily win politically we're gonna have to keep fighting it in each municipality in the whole Bay Area you know but I think that um, there's the lawsuits are going to be critical and the statewide uh, legislation is going to be critical for addressing like their level of absolute disregard for their obligations to their fellow human beings i mean that's i really i think it is that level of fucking disregard yeah yeah, i absolutely agree right that's why sony and i co-founded uh carla uh in in order to go after these exclusionary um uh, suburbs and indeed uh some cities as well um but look right there like there is no silver bullet there is no we'll just do this one thing and then we can rest there is no rest right i mean <laughs> we need to be continually organizing in places like san francisco and places like oakland in places like palo alto as well where you know i i've been ragging on palo alto but let's not forget in the in the recent election there it was a huge yimby victory yimby's won three of the four city council seats so you know congrats to them and they did that by doing the very hard work of knocking on every door in Palo Alto multiple times, right? Engaging with their neighbors. Um, and like, that wasn't just about, you know, clever lawyering or reading of the law. It's just old fashioned canvassing and doing the hard work of organizing. And shaming. Yeah, apparently the um, the viral 
medium post by Kate Vershaw Downing, who was their planning commissioner, apparently like really embarrassed the, the town, which was funny. But that's not what I was going to talk about. Um, speaking of doing the work, uh, door knocking, um, Brian probably like really inspired you. And you're like, when do I have an opportunity to do that? <laughs> February, maybe March, we're going to pick out two uh, weekends and try to get our candidate elected in Berkeley because the mayor of Berkeley um, was, before being mayor, he was the uh, representative for Berkeley's like downtown district. And so now they have to have a special election. And Ben Gould is the YIMBY endorsed candidate who's running for that. There's only 8,500 voters. That's nothing. Like, your high school might have been half that big. Yeah. My high school was, like, half that big. Yeah, I actually I was about to do division wrong, but my high school was slightly more than half that big. So, yeah, right? Like, we can definitely – big public high schools, right? I mean, uh, we can definitely knock on every door more than once. Yeah, and we are going to be uh, organizing around lots of different projects. Um, we're going to be coming out with a schedule to be tracking all, especially all 100% affordable projects, but all projects. And, and we're going to need a lot of volunteers to help us. You know, this is the other thing, you know, we, we touch on a lot of different aspects of politics in this. All of the information pretty much about what's happening in city government is basically like trapped on PDFs that are uploaded to the SFGov website and are not searchable. You can't figure out what is going to be on the agenda in any easy, like comprehensible way. When you have one meeting about an issue, you can't track that issue through meeting to meeting to meeting to like figure out. It's, it's a freaking mess. So we're going to need volunteers to help us with some degree of data entry to make, um, uh, following projects and following especially affordable projects a lot easier so if you want to volunteer to like type into your computer we would love to have you get in touch with me specifically um, I'm working with a couple of academics that have some grant funding at UCLA in order to come up with some of these tracking databases and one of them expressed interest specifically in coming up with a with a uh, database that would enable that would facilitate compliance with the Housing Accountability Act, which is the law, the state law that's closest to Sonia and I's uh, hearts. Uh, so that's, you know, great. We also have a YIMBY volunteer right now who is, you know, writing a script to scrape a municipal uh, website of all the um, documents on their um, planning commission and city council website, and then to enable um, uh, uh, text searches. So, you know, we have some very clever uh, volunteers who are working on this, and uh, this person is writing her code so that uh, we will be able to re uh, reuse it for other initiatives as well. So let's hope that works out. And if you, again, get in touch with me if, if, if you want to help out this. Awesome. All right. So we touched on this earlier, but I think we should take a second to talk about the Amazing Carla event and sort of other events that we want to do like this in the past. So Brian, take it away. Well, I'd just like to thank everyone, uh, my panelists, everyone who showed up, um, the uh, Yimby team for helping me with all the, you know, day of logistics. It The event really exceeded my expectations. So this was the uh, panel discussion uh, last week uh, called Race, Class, and Place, Uneven Impacts of the Housing Shortage, uh, uh, featuring Ben Metcalf, the director of the Department of Housing and Community Development, Tamika Moss, the chief of staff to Mayor Libby Schaff of Oakland, our uh, Carla's very own Kate Downing, um, 
the former Palo Alto Planning Commissioner and founder of Palo Alto For- uh, co-founder of Palo Alto Forward, and Michael Lenz, who I mentioned earlier, who is a uh, professor of public policy at uh, UCLA. Who also likes to engage in magic thinking that supply and demand are real things that affect the price. Yeah, let's hope that magic thinking doesn't affect his uh, 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 tenure. Um, but, you know, we... When when the panelists asked me how many folks was I expecting, like, well, you know, it, it's hard to tell. Um, I'm expecting probably between 40 and 80. I, th- I think 50 is a good guess. That said, if everyone on Facebook shows up who said they would show up, you know, we're going to have a packed house of over 100 people, and I'm not sure what, what we're going to do. Uh, we had about 130 or so people show up. So, you know, sorry for running out of beer, but, you know, thank you, everyone who came. Like, that was amazing. Yeah, and I think it shows that we should be doing events like this regularly. I think there's a real appetite for educational events. I think we have kind of resisted doing a lot of them in the past because we want people to be coming out and like doing the work of politics. I think there's so many white papers out there that all pretty much say the same thing, build more housing, build more housing, you freaking idiots, build more housing. Um so we've been really focusing on the politics at the same time. I think, you know, if we're going to be doing a lot of outreach and, and really creating a, a cohesive narrative that really shows that the, uh, especially the disproportionate impact on Latino, black, minority populations, you know, is the rich suburbs that have denied housing for decades. You know, that narrative, I think, actually is not as much in the public mind, Um, you know, mostly because the progressives have resisted putting it there because they are the rich white people who have not allowed housing in their neighborhoods. That's right. You know, um, well, I mean, the other also reason why we haven't done so many is it's a lot of work organizing these panels. Um, but the um, an, another real be- benefit to having more of them is, look, so we had Ben Metcalf there. We had Tamika Moss as the chief of staff. So, like, these are, you know, uh, uh, folks who are real policy makers. And the fact that they saw 130 energized, mostly young people come out for a wonky conversation about, you know, housing policy uh, – they're going to go back to Sacramento and to Oakland, talk to the mayor of Oakland, hopefully talk to the base of Jerry Brown, you know, say, hey, wait a minute. There are there is tons of support out there for, for what we're trying to do. It's not just the white paper crowd. It's not just tr- the traditional affordable housing advocacy community. There is a new generation of housing activists that wants you to be aggressive and that will back you up. Yeah, I'm starting to get almost insulted, actually, every time we throw a big event by all the people who say, like, wow, I had no idea that there were all these people. And I'm like, what do you think I'm doing all day? <laughs> like, you think I'm just like, like, are you my ally also buying this narrative that I'm like a developer shill and we don't have people? Like, I'm really sorry, but like, I roll deep, okay? Like, when I walk in with my housing people, like, we, we take over the club, okay? We are a strong and proud group of people who, like, are canvassing all the freaking time, you know? I mean, I guess, you know, I I shouldn't be too mean. Like, we did come up real fast, so... I get it why they haven't caught on that we're like freaking amazing. Speaking of rolling deep, you should have seen the yes crowd at the Density Bonus Project on December 8th. It was like 30 pro-project people against like four anti-project people. And the four anti-project people were just professional anti-housing people. It was Peter Cohen, a lady from the Housing Rights Coalition. Um, Peter Cohen was there because this is a Density Bonus Project. 
And one of the tasks he's decided to take on is to oppose the density bonus um, because it creates it creates housing. And, you know, I guess you can't have that in this city. He was so I mean, like every point that he made about why he was opposing the project, I was like, and that's a reason to support the project. He was like, I'm worried the precedent this sets for more density bonus projects. And I was like. I am also worried about that. If by worried, you mean excited. And then elated after it passed, right? I mean, because like, look, there are what? This is the first density bonus uh, project that has been passed so far in San Francisco. Uh, This law is from 1979. It's been around for a while. The the, the city has just been willfully ignoring state law for many years. But I believe there are, what, 12 other proposals in the pipe or something like that? So, like, there are, you know, many more... Um, proposed housing developments that want to take advantage of the density bonus law, which means more housing and more affordable housing as well on site. I did love the level of indignation that Peter Cohen expressed about state law trumping local law. And I was like, yeah, that's like how that works. Like, I don't like, I don't mean to like be explaining government to you, but like, yes, state law trumps local law. Like that's, I didn't even know what to say to that. I mean, I guess this like feeds into their thing of like most of them cut their teeth when the federal and maybe the state government too was doing bad things and like blasting through cities with, I'm trying to give him like, you know, the benefit of the doubt, right? That hyper-localism as a value tenant for him, I think comes from a place when we were doing bad things to cities and displacing people and destroying low-income housing, also known as the ghetto. Like, like we did really bad things to cities back in the day, but like, the situation now is really fundamentally completely different and he's just not able to like get up to speed. I don't think that's it because Peter Cohen's not that old. He's Gen X. He has two earrings, one in each ear. <laughs> um, I think it's actually way more straightforward. Um, he believes in neighborhood character. He wants to preserve neighborhood character. And that means that in a two-story neighborhood, you, you want to have to enforce two stories. I mean, he's told me straight out like, the difference is, like, our priority is more housing, even if it means changing the look of the city. And he's told me straight out that his priority is preserving the look of the city and and social engineering. It is also really interesting that he will really come out and say the purpose of our inclusionary zoning is not to create as many units as possible for as many low-income people as possible. The point of inclusionary zoning is neighborhood character, is to make more integrated neighborhoods. And, like... I just, you know, I mean, I think that's like, I don't know. I, I just don't think, I think you should think about how do you help as many poor people as possible. I don't know. that That's just like, I think that's the most important thing. Yeah. Can Let me point something out about median, right? Okay. So your median price point means that half of your city gets to pay less than that. So the bigger your city is, the bigger half your city is, right? So Manhattan alone, there are... 850,000 people making less than $66,000 a year living there just in Manhattan. That's an entire San Francisco's worth of people making less than $66,000 a year, right? When you have Manhattan destroys us on actually providing the infrastructure that low and middle income people need to live and thrive. Well, yeah, look, I mean, in Peter Cohen's world, we live in a sort of suburbany type San Francisco where wealthy incumbents like himself get to enjoy their homes um, or their uh, condos, in uh, his case, 
um, and you know they permit a certain small percentage of low-income people to live among them, right? I mean, that, that's the type of social engineering. That said, look, I, I think Sonia's right. If we're going to talk about Peter Cohen specifically, no, I mean, Peter Cohen just doesn't want that many people in this city. Uh, he views his primary aim as preserving neighborhood character and preventing developers from making money, not for providing a f- safe, affordable living spaces for, for uh, low-income folks. That said, though, Laura, I think you, you brought up a really good point. Many people in the, uh, many of the older folks in the affordable housing advocacy world, you know, they did cut their teeth when they were trying to prevent the federal government from bulldozing uh, neighborhoods and 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 the end of fun highways, from trying to prevent the state from con- from uh, condemning uh, using eminent domain to condemn wide swaths of low income neighborhoods and just bulldoze them. I mean, the fact that you know in Oakland they use a a surplus military tank to destroy old wooden Victorians in West Oakland. This is an in living memory for many people who still live there, right? So that makes sense. That said, how long are we gonna allow them to use that as an excuse, right? This, like, this was like decades ago. The, the threat to cities now is very, very different than it was before. The threat now is not building, not destroying, and then, you know, building um, uh, uh, highways. Yeah, especially because no one's proposing eminent domain right now, except when I wanted to eminent domain the Millennium Tower. (laughs) Which, after more investigation, I am starting to see why it's less than easily feasible. But we're still going to keep it in mind. But other than that, really, like, no one's... I mean, I have so many conversations with people where we're talking about we should upzone, you know, the sunset, and we should build houses in neighborhoods. And the first thing is, like, why would you take someone's house away from them? And that's what that's an example of something that I'm like, you. This is a a fictional. This is a fantasy that happened in your mind, and I don't know how to react to that because it's completely out of nowhere. We're talking about humans who own their land, up upzoning it, saying to them, "You can build something bigger." Doesn't mean you have to build something bigger. If you want to, you can. That's the proposal. Yeah, somebody, okay, so I was talking to this person. It's like, I grew up in San Francisco, and and they're going on about how sad it is. Like, if we allowed a lot more housing, uh, you know, that we are allowing a lot more housing in the Bayview, and that the homeowners out there, it's really sad that they're going to have to sell their property for so much more money, and it's going to destroy that community. And I was like... <laughs> And I was like, I was like really trying to like get into my like full empathy where I was like really trying to get into her head. I was like, wait, but they're selling their house for like a lot more money and they're deciding to sell their house. And I don't, I don't understand. I don't feel that sorry for that person. (laughs) I feel like they just made a million dollars from like, I don't get it. I think this gets back to the really patronizing and controlly attitude that so many, especially older white San Francisco so-called progressives have, where they're like, oh, there's this, you know, local black community in the Bayview. Let's keep them there. Let's keep that like a, you know, inexpensive place. And how awful is it that some, you know, black families are able to cash in like they did on the housing market and then you know go move wherever they want to move they, they just you know sold their place for a million bucks maybe they buy a place for half a million maybe you know do whatever else build family wealth like whatever you know this to a lot of san franciscans is like a huge tragedy not like a success story for those individual uh, uh families and what's more look if they if they wanted to sell their home for very cheap prices they could do that, right? Like nothing, nothing forces them to sell their homes for like a large amounts of money. 
or they could not sell. I mean, that was the thing I was like, the, a, a person is not forced to sell just because their house is suddenly worth $2 million. That That's not a, there, there nothing, nobody comes along knocking on their door and says, I demand that you sell this to me for $3 million. And if you don't, what? Like you, you just, you're just sitting on a very great asset and you could refinance if you wanted to and send your kids to college. Like, I don't understand at all. Yeah. I mean, especially in California. Right. There are actually times and places in the U.S. where you can be forced to sell if there's suddenly a big increase in your property value. But here this is actually right now. This is the advantage of Prop 13. We complain about Prop 13 all the time. But like there is an advantage. And the advantage is, is that you literally are never forced to sell your house. So that is the advantage. But there are any number of ways to, you know. You know, it's like uh, uh, plenty of cities and states have it so that, you know, if you there, you can't be made to spend more than a certain percentage of your of your income, like on taxes. Right? It's like, like there is like a way that you can still protect low income people in their homes if they're housing rich, but otherwise cash poor. That that doesn't mean uh, an eviction. We're on the topic of Prop 13 that I brought up. Um, <laughs> I actually want to tell everybody something that I really want to do this coming year. Um, which is the city has authorized uh, but unsold debt. And the city of San Francisco could raise property taxes without a vote of the people. Let that sink in. The Board of Supervisors could decide today, today's Tuesday, right, or next week, to raise property taxes and pay for stuff that we need. Um, and if we don't want to raise property taxes on low-income people, that's fine. We can always have grandfathering pro- you know, proposals. We could have, in effect, a backdoor income tax that the city could pass, which is ordinarily illegal in California cities. But we could do this. It would take political will. Um, I'm on a progressive mailing list, you know, like a Bernie Kratz mailing list. So I've exchanged some emails with the author, with the <laughs> this guy, Arthur, and he started to have an income tax and blah, blah, and would that be great? And so I wrote to him this specific thing, and I was like, this is something that we could do. Do you want to help? And he's like, oh, no, 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 I'm busy. Well, anyway, we're doing it without him. Hopefully the Bernie Kratz will get on board. Yeah, we are going to be coming out with a lot um, of affordable housing, a pro-affordable housing proposed legislation. I think, you know, I don't know how much we've talked about this before, but the Ben Carson being put in charge of HUD um, is just terrifying. Um, and you know, we, we want to make sure this is the thing I think that's not commonly known is that even the affordable housing developments, the subsidized affordable housing developments that are fully, uh, paid off. A lot of them are, are built on loans and things that they take out from the city. Um, but even the ones that are fully paid off, the way that they continue to function is based off of section eight and other associated funding. That's this constant funding stream, um, from HUD and, the last time we had somebody who didn't care about HUD in charge of HUD, HUD was ransacked. This was the Reagan administration. Um, the money was redirected into many people's pockets. Um, I think that we are witnessing a kleptocracy emerging in the form of Donald Trump, and we need to be thinking very proactively about all the things we can do to support our subsidized affordable housing because um, it's 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 going to be I, I don't know what it's what's going to happen. It's terrifying. So um, we've got a couple pieces of legislation that we want to be putting forward. Um, some of it's like just like basic like transparency about where the inclusionary fees are going. There's sort of a big black box about how that money is being spent. Um, some of it's like 
you know, we're talking with people about whether we can do a vacancy tax um, like Vancouver did to fund affordable housing. Um, some of it is uh, getting rid of the one mile radius for affordable housing off site. Um, so in the decade that we've had that one mile radius, not a single off site really has been built and so uh if we made it so that you could build it further away maybe they would build more units that's what we've heard um yeah so we're going to come out with a whole bunch of policy recommendations and, and some of them just about getting more money as the hud money goes away and some of it's about making it easier to build affordable housing yeah i wanted to chime in ab about the one mile radius issue uh, so the reason that a lot of affordable housing advocates in, in san francisco wanted it was this thought that well uh, communities that see development should be the ones that get the money for affordable housing or the money for whatever. And that makes a certain amount of sense. That said, I really like what Chicago is doing now. Now, I don't know too much about the specifics of how this works, but in Chicago, you're seeing a lot of development in the downtown and near downtown areas. You're seeing a lot of high-rise development in wealthy communities of opportunity. You're seeing next to nothing in a lot of these poor neighborhoods on the south and west sides of the city. So what's the city now going to do? They're going to take some of this money that they're getting from developers downtown and redirect it to other communities that really need it. And so, you know, I think there's a real social justice angle here that there are plenty of communities in San Francisco that are low income and are also not seeing any new development. And so it might make sense to tr to figure out a way that, that that we can, you know, harness more development in some of our wealthier areas and then redirect those funds to communities that need it more. Yeah, although I would be the biggest fan of building affordable, subsidized affordable housing in wealthy neighborhoods. Uh, that is how we get mixed income communities. And so, yeah. Oh, you mean like Forest Hill? Is that a place you're thinking of? That would be a place I'm thinking of. No, the funniest part is all of the wealthy progressives living in hills. This is like a total thing where they live up on the hills and rain dominion down upon the people who don't have views anyway. And they are obsessed with their views. I mean, it is kind of a... I don't know. So everyone should go read David Talbot's uh, article that he wrote before the one that's so mean. But his first article, which is basically all about sort of like taking you on a tour of polite society in Bernal Hills, where it's all of the progressives who dominate the mission. I mean, he really takes you through all of the people who are his neighbors who you might think would be like mission activists, but in fact are like wealthy Bernal homeowners reigning dominion down upon the mission. Yeah, and look, this was an, this has been a, an issue for a long time in the mission where I, I lived for six years before I was displaced to Oakland, um, really by some of these Bernal Hill dwellers. So yeah, the, the politics of District 9 are largely run in Bernal Hill, where they quite literally are able to look down. Um, but the thing is, you know, David Talbot had this, you know, piece about his, you know, quaint Bernal. Bernal is boutique as fuck. Like, go up on Cortland and, like, look around. This is, like, not a place for, like, the working woman and man, okay? Like, it is a place for those with money who like cute things, which is, you know, fine. But... I would love to see like who are like the top 50 progressive political players in this city and do do they live like on top of a hill yes or no because I swear every single person I hear about they all live in Bernal they live in Potrero they live on Telegraph Hill like they just like l you know live in the eastern part of the city on one of the hills not slumming it in the flats with everyone else. 
No, I call this Yertle the Turtle Syndrome, okay? They live up on their hills, and they look down at all the people of the world, and I've been joking. I am Mac, and I am ready to sneeze. And if you know what I'm talking about, I don't know, tweet it, Yertle the Turtle Syndrome. Like, I do not understand... I don't know, right? I really do. I keep going back and forth between being like, what do you what do you push back on and what do you not push back on, right? We kind of made a decision relatively early on that if we were going to like like getting sucked into the where do you get your funding from discussion is just endless and a waste of time. Like we're not well funded. This office doesn't have heat. Like we have one microphone that we pass around. Like I'm like, this is like, you know, if you really want to think that we're developer shills, like that's like, you're just deciding that, you know, but I don't know, maybe we should put a more effort into pushing back on that narrative. I, I just don't know what, like, what is an argument that we should spend time on and what is not? Like, we're radically transparent in so many ways. I mean, like, like the, the fact that the SF BARF email list, which is where, like, much of the discussion happens, is an open email list that, you know, a anyone can view. That's, like, part of our, you know... Uh, organizational culture um, uh, from the beginning has been one of, of, of openness and transparency. With the Sierra Club specifically, um, after those, you know, the multimillionaire uh, Dean Preston um, leveled the, the false accusations about us, the candidates posted where, where they got all their money from and guess what it's not from it's not from you know big developers or big real estate it's all from one of the guys running bless travis cole he is the one who is funding and this and look there you know it's in like the thousands and just like the you know like the one you know digit app to, to left the comment right i mean like this is not big money here no, I love it. I mean, like, I, I, I cannot follow the bar forums. Let me just also say, like, like while some people may feel like that's where the conversation is happening, I cannot keep up with that like stream of nonsense. But the, the I will say that our funding is very understandable like who gives us money the biggest section of our money is frustrated upper middle management okay these are people who are making just enough money that they have some disposable income and they're super pissed that they still can't quite buy a house and like they haven't had a kid but they've got like a cat or a dog and they're like what the fuck <laughs> like why you know I'm 36 I want to be like settling down in some way and yet I can't because I can't cannot afford to fundamentally live here and I'm like five years behind because I graduated in the middle of the recession you know like that's our prime target donor and they donate like a thousand dollars here two thousand dollars there um, those are our most consistent donors and I love them to pieces and I feel like you know they have that weird combo of like rage and disposable income that like makes a lot of sense yeah and I, I said this at the uh, panel discussion last week but it really is gratifying when we were receive donations from people who are also volunteers. It was like like it's not like like these are folks who aren't just writing a check and saying, okay, go do good work. They're writing a check or, you know, clicking a few buttons. Um, and then also showing up to, you know, stuff envelopes for a thing or to testify on behalf of a project or what other, you know, other type of, uh, of volunteer activity. And just like f from a personal level, it, it means a lot. I mean, it, it's a really great vote of confidence in the work that we're doing when the people who are donating to us are the people who know our work the best. Um, that said, it's like, look, we, we, we have received some, not much, larger dollar donations, but where have these uh, come from? Not from the development community, 
they've come from tech leaders who definitely are quite wealthy. Um, but from their perspective, this is a disaster for their employees, right? Like they don't financially have any direct in involvement in land use policy. They're off running their companies or managing their divisions or whatever. Um, but the folks who report to them are having a really hard time uh, making it here. Yeah, anybody who's a mass employer in the area should be like knocking down our door trying to put money into our hands. Hint, hint, please do that. We do not have heat. I'm really freaking cold. Like anybody who's a mass employer should care about fixing this problem. You know, I mean, this is the only way either you're going to move your entire company to Arizona, which is like, uh, I can't even comprehend, but at least it's hot there. Um, <laughs> Yeah, Laura's not joking. She's in a sw in a sweater, moving around a lot. I, I assume to you know encourage you know body heat uh, generation. Uh, this place is freezing. I can't feel my hands. Yeah, this is like. But it, okay, my 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 other point is that the mass employers like they have a reason to want to solve this problem. Like there are all these crazy stories. Like there are people who live in Sacramento commuting to Palo Alto. Okay, and if you're a Sierra Club fanatic and you want to reduce greenhouse gases, that is a real fucking problem. You know, the fact that we have displaced people to Sacramento is crazy. They have sh tech shuttle buses that go. I don't know what the further this one that goes out is but you know anybody who employs a lot of people in the area should say my my I'm spending a huge amount of money on labor and my people are still living in misery and they are getting grafted by these freaking landlords of course we should build more housing yeah and and that's the thing right I mean for and for any new companies the 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 amount of extra money that you have to spend to recruit talent because of the high housing costs imagine if you were able to spend that to either hire more people or to invest more right like the 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 you were basically having to raise a lot of extra money in order to enrich landowners and landlords in the bay area uh it's a really shitty part of your uh you know f uh, financial package they have to put together yeah, so maybe you should make your donation a percentage of that. I don't know what exactly you want your donation to be, but like, hint, hint, we could really use some help. All right, so on that note, uh, any other announcements, things we want to go over? It's Christmas time. Good time to buy your friend or yourself a book. Um, the Bay Area Metro Observer is publishing its first book. It's an illustrated version of Kim May Cutler's How ba Burrowing Owls. Um, lead to vomiting anarchists. So this foundational text you can have in illustrated format. Um, the preview pictures look really, really good. I'm actually really excited about this. It's going to be really cool. We have a Kickstarter. So if you go to like at SFUMB Twitter, it's the top thing. And it'll be on the website soon, I'm sure. And it's on SFBAMO, definitely. SFBAMO.com. Yeah, so the Kickstarter is like you can just put money in to get your own book or put in more money um, so that we can print 750 copies and then put them like in bookstores all over. Imagine that some person is in a bookstore and they're like, well, this is interesting. This is the intersection of policy and looking at cartoons that I've been looking for. <laughs> so I think it'll be really huge. Like just get the word out. I think that for a lot of us, that article like was the thing that made us realize what the situation was. 
Okay. And uh, other announcements. We will be selling also um, some of Alfred Twu's cartoons uh, in January. We're going to start selling some prints and cardstock type stuff. Uh, if you've seen his work, we've tweeted out a couple things. They're pretty fun. Um, so that's going to be another sort of bit of things you can buy that are Yimby swag. Um, I also, we've heard from people, um, you know, we've got Yimby's in San Jose who are organizing. We'll be tweeting that out. Um, and sort of across the country. If you are somebody in uh, a city or a transit-rich suburb or a town that you think really needs a lot more housing, um, we are really starting to help people launch. This is going to be a big project January, February, March. Um, so if you want to start scheduling meetups, uh, get people in your area involved, uh, we want to hand you the megaphone and help you rally people in your area. So get in touch. Hello at sfumb.org. Uh, anything from you, Brian? Nothing definite coming up right now in terms of new panel discussions or anything, um, although there are a couple that I want to put together. Uh, one, I, when I was speaking with the Carpenters, we had this idea to try to have, if not a debate, a, a discussion between sort of the the economists that work for the Carpenters and the economists that work for re uh, real estate developers to find out, okay, what what are the effects of, of uh, requiring things like prevailing wage as part of any housing streamlining initiative like for instance as proposed by scott wiener scott wiener's great new senate bill only kicks in if the developers are paying a prevailing uh, wage so that's a, a much higher wage um, uh, than the market wage is uh, typically um, and so you know different folks have different ideas about this it works differently based on construction type and uh, based on you know location and where you are in the market cycle um, but I'm hoping that if we can figure out some way to make this work to make prevailing wage be a thing that doesn't just pencil in San Francisco and downtown LA and other very high cost areas that this could be the beginning of a real alliance between the, the labor movement in California and the Yimmy movement Awesome. Thanks so much. And we'll chat with you maybe next week, but maybe it'll be Christmas. I don't know. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.